Welcome to the Collaborators Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me and my guests as we reflect on what it looks like to collaborate with Jesus for the flourishing of nonviolent Christianity right now in all the difficulty and promise of our present moment. When we collaborate with Jesus, we join a movement for the building up of communities that heal rather than wound, that unite instead of divide, and that create the possibility for love and mercy to define who we are. On this podcast, you will meet people who are part of this movement, and we will find them inside and outside church walls because the spirit cannot be constrained by human boundaries. We'll talk about our fears, doubts and beliefs, wounds and nagging questions, because when we are collaborating with Jesus, he wants all of us along for the journey. In fact, we believe that coming from a place of doubt is the best starting place to discover what God is doing in our midst right now during these challenging yet strangely hopeful times. I'm your host, Suzanne Ross, and in this episode, we'll be talking with Catholic priest and theologian, retreat giver and itinerant preacher, James Allison. I could list James's credentials for you, but he doesn't care about those things, and it wouldn't really give you much of an idea of who this man is. Instead, I'll tell you that I first encountered James through his book, The Joy of Being Wrong, and it so radically changed the way I thought about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him that within two years, the Raven Foundation began working with James to film his introduction to Christianity into an online course. It's called Jesus the Forgiving Victim, Listening for the Unheard Voice. I jumped into that project despite having never created an online curriculum and really having no idea what I was doing, but I desperately wanted everyone to know what James had taught me, that our capacity for forgiveness is not measured by how well we forgive others, but by how open we are to being forgiven. It's then we discover the joy of being wrong. It's my pleasure to introduce you to James and his orthodox yet startlingly new understanding of Christian faith and life. The Collaborators Podcast is a production of the Raven Foundation, and this episode is a wonderful example of the way Raven has partnered with James Allison over the years to share his fresh take on Christian faith and practice. This episode is sponsored by James' reintroduction to Christianity called Jesus the Forgiving Victim, Listening for the Unheard Voice. Through video content and group discussions, small groups meet to break bread together and find themselves reformed in the image of a loving, merciful God. With Forgiving Victim, you can discover a radical yet utterly orthodox Christianity that is livable, prayable, and preachable. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast, James. Thanks for being here. It's a delight to be here. Great. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You had an unexpected surprise not too long ago, a phone call from Pope Francis. Not many people... <laughs> get a surprise like that. And you did. And you were surprised. But, you know, in one sense, it 
it was a long time coming too. So what I'd like to do is give you a chance to tell us about that phone call. But before we get there, I kind of want to set a context for it and to see why it was such a meaningful event in your life and also what it tells us about a little bit about what we can expect about how change happens in a great big sprawling institution like the Roman Catholic Church. So thanks for engaging with us on this. Let's jump in. So James, you are a rare bird. You are a openly gay Catholic priest. Now being a, a gay priest is not a rarity, but not really, no. no, but being <laughs> open about it is and there's good reasons for that. Catholic priests find themselves gay priests find themselves in a double bind, sort of damned if they come out and damned if they don't. So I'm wondering if you could share what that double bind is about. It's a double bind that has grown over the last, I would say, 50 or 60 years. As on the one hand, being gay has moved from being, in most Western societies, a dangerous thing to be uh, subjecting you to all kinds of risk of rejection, blackmail, murder. It was a dangerous, a dangerous place to be. But over the last 50 or 60 years, I'm glad to say, gradually and increasingly very rapidly, gay people have been understood to be, well, really pretty normal and banal. Elements of normal reality as it is lived by all of us. And with that, the understanding that being gay and developing gay relationships that are of good quality and that help the persons involved flourish is a good thing and part of the the way we hope that our friends and relatives uh, who are gay relatives will flourish. Now, what has happened over in the church over that time is that what used to be a scarcely talkable about crime or sin, as the people who found themselves gay when very young noted that one of the safest places to be gay in earlier times was the church, because it was one of the very few places where no one would question the fact that you didn't have a, a girlfriend if you were a, a priest or a, a boyfriend if you were a nun. And so actually a huge amount of freedom was available for ways of being in what's essentially a don't ask, don't tell world. But as society opened up, what had genuinely been a don't ask, don't tell world started to become a much more explicitly don't ask, don't tell world. In other words, what was informal became very quickly formalized. So you started to find people the pressure on people not to say who they were and not to even explore whether it might be perfectly okay to be who they are, becoming ever stronger. And because of this, I'm afraid from the 70s onwards, church, I think church authority entered into a sort of a panic. And rather than accepting the science, which was beginning to show that there was simply nothing pathological, there is simply nothing pathological in being gay or lesbian, it's what I call a non-pathological minority variant in the human condition, rather like left-handedness. And that therefore, if that is the case, then the behavior flowing from it is to be judged according to whether or not it leads to productive, happy results in the part of those involved, or whether it leads to the self-destructive, if you like, pathological 
conclusions that we recognize when we're dealing with things that are seriously disordered? And the answer is, over time, people have noticed that it actually tends to lead to people who accept themselves and are open and develop relationships, tends to develop good relationships, and these things tend to open up. In other words, following the you'll know the tree by its fruit model, which is the one Jesus offered, these particular fruits, using the old-fashioned joke word, um, are actually rather good. <laughs> but uh, church authority, faced with the threat to its whole ethos of beginning to recognize this, doubled down on the notion that, no, it is a disorder, and we have to maintain this, and that, in fact, the whole of the clerical structure basically depends on the maintenance of this disorder, because it, of this teaching as a disorder, because it's what enables there to be a large number of compliant so-called celibates who have no interest in the, in the opposite sex, um, and provided they don't talk about uh, any interests they may have in their own sex, are safe employees. But of course, that does impose a terrible double bind on people, because people may join at a time, which was my case, at a time when they actually believed in the church's teaching, believed that there was something wrong with them, and then discover over time, as, as we grow up, that that's not the case. In which case, you suddenly realize that you're committed to a way of life that depends on you maintaining a lie in order to survive. So, as you say, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And there's only one solution for this in the long term, and that is church authority agreeing to allow the discussion of what is true in this area to emerge so that no one makes commitments under false premises, which has been the case up until now. But at the moment, a huge number of people have made commitments under false premises and are very agonized as they begin to discover how impossible truth-telling becomes if they are to hold on to any of the value in their lives. And that seems to me to be worth something worth standing up for and bringing into the light so that it becomes less toxic. And is so that, is, that, you, is that a sort of an, is that an answer? Sort of an answer. Well, it is. I mean, it's hard to accept that the church was so resistant to what was being discovered about being gay, especially because so many church authorities are gay and have been for a long time. And that resistance to telling the truth about themselves seems kind of hard to wrap my mind around. Well, I remember that we're dealing with a sacred reality. And I use the term sacred advisedly, not in the in, in its Gerardian sense, of, of a closed down sacral system which imposes fear on people mm. and demands sacrifice. This is not something holy. But effectively, the clerical closet is a sacred system. It's a system of taboos which throws you out if you don't respect it. And it's a system of taboos that feeds on very deep fears. Remember that if you're a young kid, and I faced this between the age of nine and 18 and actually until the age of 35. But a huge number of people are brought into the recognition that as they discover who they are, they are going to hell simply for being who they are. And this is a terrifying reality. The one solution they are given seems to be a solution of pretend that you're not who you are, sacrifice yourself completely to Jesus taking up your cross, that's the language that is entirely falsely used in this circumstance. And uh, God will accept the sacrifice, cover over uh, your evil, and allow you to become some good, basically by not being who you are. 
Yeah. And that is a very powerful sacred message. And as a sacred message, it's a demand for sacrifice. It's a demand basically to cease to be a human person. And it accounts for why so many leading uh, ecclesiastical authorities lose their personalities. And you can see perfectly clearly that they have become smiling repetiteurs of magisterial positions that have nothing to do with real life their own or anybody else's. And uh, within, you find buried, if you, don't, you don't have to scratch very hard, absolutely rigid totalitarian interior because they've got to hold on to that. It's yeah. more than their life is worth to let go of the sacred structure. This is not abundant life as Jesus promised it. It's a sign of the effect, the terrible effect of a sacred taboo, which the Holy Spirit has not yet set us free from, but is, I hope, in the process of setting us free. Yeah, what's well, a, it's a terrible choice, either for the gay priest, either you're wrong, or the church that you've committed your life to is wrong. And it's like many people choose to be wrong themselves, rather than the, the church being wrong. Yes, or, or fail to make a decision, and so remain half wrong, themselves and think the church is half wrong and therefore actually suffer a constant mixture of shame and rivalry and upset with themselves. Yeah. Uh, so the very complicated series of pathologies uh, flow from uh, flow from this. Few of us are full-hearted enough to be totally one thing or another and full-heartedness is not, is not a given. Full-heartedness is something struggled for over time. Singleness yeah. of heart is so yes, I think learning to live in the mercy with the mess so as to see if we can find a way out of this that allows us to be daughters and sons rather than heroes and sacrifices right. <laughs> is, a, is a tough one, but it's a, it's, a real, it's a real challenge. And so when you were coming to your own understanding of your sexuality as being banal and just a normal variant. You were a member of the Dominican order, isn't that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's right. Yeah. So, but you were brave enough to raise the questions with your superiors, right? How did they react to your questioning this sort of double standard or don't ask, don't tell kind of policy? Well, I mean, that's a, it's an interesting question because, of course, when I started with the Dominicans, which was at the very beginning of the 80s, it was before John Paul II's massive application of the brakes to bring everything backwards had really taken place. So when I joined the Dominicans in 1980, uh, 1981, I started with them in Mexico, there was still, if you like, a vague assumption from the, the end of the 70s that things were going to move forward in this sphere and that, yes, of course, honesty was a good thing and that little by little we'd get to working out what was true in this area. At the time I joined, I was out to those with whom I joined. They thought that it was necessary to be prudent. There were some people who one could tell and other people who one couldn't tell. But that was it. It was not a, a major problem. All of that changed over the next 15 years in quite dramatic ways as basically John Paul shut down conversations about so many things as he appointed to positions of authority really very draconian and not very intelligent people in most, in most cases but people who had an absolute loyalty to that sacred structure, clericalist and homophobic. And of course, the fact that, as we now know, 
the vast majority of these were themselves gay men with double lives is now no surprise to anybody, but that's what it was. That's what we were going through. So my experience with the Dominicans when I joined, both in Mexico and then later in England, they had been beginning to deal with this in grown-up ways during the, the late 70s and early 80s. So it was not a real issue. It only became an issue in my dealings with the Dominicans. I should say that, you know, I was honest out of necessity. I wasn't yet comfortable with the reality myself at the time. I still thought that I had a basic obligation to be chaste and not to have any partner because I was gay and was a person with a, some sort of objective disorder. But I did think that honesty was important and that not telling the truth was a bad thing. But so a certain basic honesty was certainly possible and talk all about at that time. These things became worse in my experience in other different countries in South America in which I lived, where let's say the, the locals had had much less chance of adult discussion amongst themselves. Or in the case of Brazil, where I moved in 1987, they had bought into the Castroist ideology of the time, Castroist as in Fidel, one of the assumptions of the Cuban revolution at an early stage, later altered by Fidel and, and walked back from and apologized for, one of their assumptions was that being gay was a bourgeois counter-revolutionary thing that only, if you like, corrupt and perverted aristocrats did. And that the working class, the revolutionary class, was pure and didn't do any of these things. Therefore, if somebody was gay, it was a sign that they were secretly a remnant of the bourgeois, corrupt, counter-revolutionary class. As you can imagine, now that's, I mean, it sounds completely dotty. <laughs> but at the time, that was kind of the hard left dogma. And indeed, uh, Fidel sent gay people to enforce work camps, actually under the label, work will make you free, imitating, no, work will make you men, El trabajo o será hombres, uh, imitating uh, Auschwitz's work will make you free. So, the, you know, the, the strong left in South America at the time was far more hostile to gay people than the moderate corrupt right, if you like. So I got into trouble, if you like, you know, that thing was so obvious nonsense. And then, of course, AIDS came along and demonstrated that some of the people who were dying were of uh, bourgeois and uh, upper middle class counter-revolutionary values, but a huge number of those who were dying were poor people of color, as is, as I said, poor black people in a largely in a country where most of the poor people are black. If you like, things started to become a bit more complicated there because they had used that Castroist rhetoric as a way of avoiding dealing with the matters amongst themselves. And the answer is, as I've discovered, that there is no universal way to deal with this thing can only be worked through as local demons are faced up to. Mm-hmm. In other words, the way lying in this sphere is structured in each society is different. There is no one-size-fits-all remedy to it other than brave people becoming truthful so that other people don't have to be so brave. Mm. My mistake earlier on was thinking that there would be a one-size-fits-all pattern. There isn't. Each culture is beginning to deal with these things differently in its own way and following a mixture of unhealthy patterns in dealing so but we're all in a learning process. So does that, does that come somewhere near answering what? what uh, well, yeah, what I mean, you're right. You had a very particular local situation that you were dealing with. And so what ultimately happened was you left the Dominicans or you were politely asked to leave? 
the, oh, no, the no, opinions no, or no, what no, happened there? No, when I finally understood, thanks to the death of the man I loved at the time, that this whole business about being gay, being some sort of objective disorder was false, and that the love involved was real and not a sort of hedonistic, relativistic distortion, which was, you know, the John Paul II rhetoric at the time. Once, uh, once I'd perceived that, I realized, one, that it would be blasphemous to kick God in the teeth by pretending to carry on, depending on an institution that depended on this lie to keep going, but also that I had never really been part of it because my, my commitment, my vows and promises had been made while I was under a false conscience. And it's the same if a straight person were to get married to someone with a pistol to their head. It would not be a valid marriage. They might go through the form of law validly and sign everything uh, correctly, but it would be an invalid marriage because a pistol was to its head. With a pistol to your head, you are, you, you are not making a free choice. So once I, I appreciated that, I realized I'm not a member of this congregation. I've been a guest all along. I realized that. I told them that. And I should say that a, a number of them completely understood. Of course, there was nothing they could do about it because their membership system depends on Catholic canon law, which depends on this particular teaching being true. So they said, well, nothing we can do. Farewell. And I should say that I've had very good relations with many of them ever since. Some people, in a, you, you know, the idea in a religious congregation is that you're all brothers or sisters. And over time, you discover that you did become brothers with some people. Yeah. <laughs> and with others, it was simply a technicality. Right. And uh, yeah, so I've been enormously privileged in what I've received from the, from the Dominicans. Things were pretty rough, some phases, owing to things in which I was completely complicit as I attempted to struggle my way through the various forms of lie in which I and they were all caught up. Mm. But certainly, although they indicated, or sorry, a group of them indicated that they wanted to expel me, they never could. After all, I hadn't done anything that was worthy of expulsion. No, 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 I left, I left under my own steam with, with real gratitude for everything that I picked up. I mean, it was, after all, their teaching that gave me the strength of conscience finally to understand the truth of this matter. Mm-hmm. If it hadn't been for the wonderful, wonderful teachers, who would I be who would be able to stand up and uh, say things that I've been able to say since then? Yeah, I think that's absolutely wonderful because it, it also relates to, to a much less dramatic maybe situation from a, the way it looks on the outside. But a lot of people who've been raised in Christian churches, Catholic or Protestant, find themselves questioning church teaching, a lot of times because of church teachings, that they're in conflict with each other. I know we kind of find ourselves having to make a choice. Do we stay within the church? Do we go outside the church to find God? I know my own journey when I was a young adult to start questioning atonement theologies that I had been taught. It just never occurred to me that I could even talk about it with people, the nuns who had been my teachers and a, right. a priest. That I just thought, oh, well, I guess I'm an agnostic then, or I'm an no. atheist, because I don't believe this doctrine. I must not be a Christian. And so it was this very dramatic choice that I thought I had to make. But it was somehow as if, if I didn't believe that one thing, I didn't believe you know, that my faith was... Yes, well, that's, that's the effect that a sacred taboo has. There we go. If a teaching is a teaching, it brings you to life. If it's a sacred taboo, it shuts down all possibilities. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was certainly my experience. And which is why I've just really gravitated towards the way you talk about faith and doubt as part of faith. And I'm wondering if you could just help us talk about that a little bit. What does it mean to have doubt in the midst of faith? What does that mean? Well, I think that that all this only really makes sense if we can get out of the temptation to think of faith as a form of ideology. An awful lot of people think that faith is a series of propositions which are held in your head. And for me, one of the wonderful things that I learned from René Girard and keep on learning from René Girard is that we are relational before we are rational. In as far as we are moved by others, both obviously by our interaction with people, but also gradually just by being born and brought into being and learning language and so on and so forth, that it's that that brings about our capacity to be what we call rational. In other words, here is not the starting point. Uh, the starting point is if you like sideways to us and we become thinking symptoms of a series of relational interchanges. And given that, it makes far more sense why the notion of faith should be such an important part of Christianity. Because what the, if you like, the preeminence of faith is saying is, you are being brought into being as I hold you and love you. In the degree to which you relax into that and discover truly that I am loving you and hold you into being, so you will gradually become free of being bound down by all sorts of things that seem important and seem sacred and aren't, so that you will actually be set free to be able to become my son, my daughter. That's, if you like, the promise of faith. But what that means is that who we are is constantly, if you like, being undone from within by someone who is much, much bigger than everything that is, much, much gentler than everything that is, and who has a plan for us that involves enabling us to let go of all our false securities, false forms of knowledge, false ways in which we've been brought into being and are held in being by the tensions and uh, struggles and strifes that give us temporary shots of identity. But what that means is that as we find ourselves, if you like, being given who we are by this other, actually what it feels like much of the time is a whole series of losses. Because the things that are on the surface, the things that we can actually feel, are the losses of certain kind of security, the losses of the way we hold on to things. And these produce what I call crises of identity. And we're inclined to attribute the crisis of identity to, to God rather than to us. <laughs> to think, I must be losing faith in God because I'm feeling all these disturbances. You're saying, no, it's precisely because God is working in you that you are able to have all these disturbances. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have faith in God, you would be so battened down that you wouldn't be able to have them. You would be holding on like sheer desperation to the false you that is necessary to get through things and win. Yeah. But it's as you find yourself held in being, what that feels like is all that false holding yourself in being to win you start to be able to let go. And what this feels like is a series of crises of self when you seem to be losing yourself. I mean, who would I be if my being was not held in place by, for instance, the closet? Yeah. 
who would I be if I didn't have that excuse for not being able to love someone? I would be, I would be utterly lost. I would be bereft. I would be bereft of meaning. Mm-hmm. And that projected looks like a crisis of faith. And I want to say, no, it's an occlusion of the self produced by the gift of faith. And one of the things that we should expect the gift of faith to do is to empty us out of all the false gods and idols to which we normally uh, hold, so that actually we find ourselves standing free and discovering who we really are, being run without fear by one who is utterly without rivalry with us and is gently bringing us into being so that we we may enjoy him who enjoys us. So, yeah, that's, that's why I think that the doubt and crises of faith are absolutely part of this, uh, yeah. of this journey. And otherwise, you really would think that it was simply a question of ideology. I have got this ideology right, and now I must hold on to it. Yeah. That's one of the worst idols possible, mm-hmm. because that's a guarantor of holding on with fake goodness to something which will then devastate you and other people. Right. The way you were just talking about Catholic hierarchies holding on to this false teaching about being gay that shuts down learning, it shuts down being able to be truthful about yourself. For themselves and for others. And And of course, off the record, informally, many of them express nuance, things like that, whenever they get together, it's the group fear thing that runs them. Yeah, very much. I was hearing that recently from a member of a a group that worked in the Vatican uh, recently to produce a document. And he said the difference between people's opinions in the coffee break and when it came time to have group discussions was just terrifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... They're off the record, no problem at all. On the (laughs) record, they've got to contribute to some entirely mythical, fake consensus of something which they all know individually is false. It's not a not a healthy system. No, not at all. And I think that it's encouraging to think about. And I guess that's why I gravitated to your explanation of faith. And that what's prompting the doubt is actually the movement of the spirit yes. within you yeah. to say, "There's something wrong here. It doesn't feel right. This not, ugh, you know, <laughs> it's not helping." That's a lot of people, especially young people, are leaving. Christianity, leaving church, well, leaving organized churches yeah. right now for that dropping reason. Out, dropping out or just dropping in place uh, in it, some strange way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's encouraging in a way that the spirit is moving outside the institution of the church. And that's always been the case, I'm sure, but we're seeing it now. And I'm wondering, as we're talking about what's the future then for not just for Catholicism, but for Christianity in general, because a lot of these teachings cross over denominations, whether they're... Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, the pathologies you know, are, are... They're, pathologies they're, all, are, they're are everywhere. They're pretty transversal. They're pretty transversal. Yeah. Everywhere humans are, we find them. <laughs> yes. But I'm wondering, you know, you have this project that you're working on right now called Praying Eucharistically. That is sort of a, a part of maybe your way of thinking about where what's the future now for how we worship, what church looks like together. You know, what, what does church look like? What is church, James? <laughs> you talk about okay. it as a sign. What is that sign about? How do we bring that sign into our lives mm. in the conditions we find ourselves? 
Well, you know, talk about a small question with uh, without without much advanced warning. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I feel pretty incompetent to say anything big about that because, you know, let's just start with the praying Eucharistically project. This was something I came up with just at the beginning of the COVID confi- when COVID confinement started, and it began to become clear that lots and lots of people were not going to be able to go to to mass and a lot of church people of different sorts seem to react by saying, well, it doesn't matter, we'll just put a fixed camera above our altar in our church and we'll, we'll preside as normal and people can watch at home. And so you have all these solitary masses which, with people watching on. I think there are questions of taste here. I, for me, I, I would never spend time doing that. It's simply completely uninteresting to me. That's true of lots of other people as well. They find it just bizarre watching a solitary celebration in which they're only participating in the, the vaguest uh, senses. And it occurred to me that time has come to be a little bit bolder in understanding the Christian notion of priesthood, which after all is that we have one priest, who is Jesus, and we are all that priest by virtue of, ordina- of our ordination right, which is baptism, that within the priesthood of all the baptized, which therefore, in principle, can do all of the things in its baptism, which is the real key to eternal life, as has always been said in the case, and to all the different roles within the church. One of the roles is that of the sacrament of orders, which even by official church teaching does not add to the priestly quality of the person one bit. It's not even on the same level as anything priestly. It appears to be a role within priestly ordination to help bring out the sign of priesthood in the life of all the faithful. So I thought to myself, I, as an ordained person, what is the way in which I can use my orders to help bring out the priestly sign within the group of baptized believers who, for reasons too bizarre to be believed, think that I have something to say? So I decided rather than to, what's the word, to to fill myself saying Mass, which, as I said, didn't seem to me to make any sense at all, to make available to them online the Missal, essentially, uh, in clearly and easily structured ways. So I alter it each week so it reflects that week's prayer, rather than people having this huge, great, rather expensive book that they have to learn to wade their way through with all the different coloured ribbons and strange, strange annotations. And it takes quite a long time to get used to that big book. They knew that most people at home were not going to be able to do that. But to make available for them the way of themselves being the principal celebrants at home. And I follow the the Emmaus model on this, which is that the word comes from outside and the presence happens domestically at the table. So what I offered was the structure to enable them to celebrate the presence domestically at table praying through the Eucharist in exactly the same way as if they were in church, but with them saying all the words. So consecrating bread and the wine, and finding Jesus truly present, giving himself to them. And then the word coming from outside being just formally the reading of the gospel and the homily, because it seems to me that there's something proper with the notion of the word coming from outside us and being uh, something which uh, is our interlocutor and shakes us up from within. It's an ideal 
in an ideal church service, we hear Jesus speaking to us on the road to Mass and then discover himself giving to himself to us in the breaking of the bread. So that's the model uh, that I've used now. And it's still still going on, incidentally, eh? because many people, and particularly some elderly people, are going to be confined for an awfully long time, given that until the vaccine comes along, it really is unsafe for them to go back to places of worship if they are for reasons of age or, or for instance, cancer survivors with uh, lowered immunity. Then a number have told me how wonderful this has been for them to do themselves at home. And it's, what's amazed me is how frequently quite conservative religious women, I mean, sisters, or, you know, again, quite conservative people from different walks of life have taken this straight away without any hesitation or you know, scruple about them becoming the celebrants and thinking, oh, there isn't a priest there to do it. So no, you are the priest. <laughs> in these circumstances, it's perfectly clear that a priesthood must be exercised properly by you in your domestic setting as richly as possible. To judge by their feedback, a number of people have found both is enormously enriching personally, but also, to my mind, more important that they've felt a sense of a shared doing of something together with other people who are doing this throughout the world. In other words, that it's given them a sense of together that I hadn't really expected would be possible, but which does seem to have been possible. Now, where all this is going in, in the future, I have little idea. But I do think all of this is going to challenge the way people regard it as normal and therefore binding a whole lot of things which turn out to be much more arbitrary and conventional and therefore capable of being reimagined mm-hmm. as we start recovering new ways of being together. I have little idea what those are going to be. And when you ask about the question of church, my wonderful experiences of church over the last years have been being able, uh, as a gay man who is also a priest of thoroughly unsatisfactory personal life, to be able to share with other gay people, Eucharists in small groups, but maybe as many as 50 or 60, from 20 to 60, or from 10 to 60, depending on the place wherein physically. But with other people who are in the process of accepting themselves and in the process of being able to speak truthfully, and therefore, when it comes to the prayer, we know we're sinners. And we know that Jesus rejoices to be with sinners. And that therefore, he's speaking to us in a way that helps build us up. So we're able to share the gospel, share our responses to it, and build each other up. And I have found these Eucharistic uh, celebrations to be, a, for me, a sign of what it's about. They're a sign of being taken out of ourselves and becoming united in in ways we didn't expect, and signs of the richness of Eucharistic presence that, as it were, the textbooks hadn't prepared me for. (laughs) In one sense, they pointed me towards it. (laughs) But that there is something wonderful about sinners who are becoming relaxed about being sinners, welcoming the presence in their midst of the crucified and risen Lord who is giving us new words, new insights, new forms of getting out of various forms of closed downness and darkness in which we have lived into discovering ourselves loved and being able to build each other up. Those seem to me to be signs. I'm talking about tiny signs here. But tiny, but I think very multipliable signs. (laughs) 
provided we're aware that Jesus is in the business of not of pushing people into shame, but into what I call holding our shame and detox, holding it in tenderness and detoxifying it. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to be so important for reimagining church now, yeah. dealing with the question of shame. Yeah. And that's you know that's something I would really like to I would really welcome a, a bigger discussion. Oh, so would I. So would I. We'll have to have another conversation about that. Yeah, but I, about that. I think what you're pointing to is very. It's sort of encouraging to those people who are trying to find new ways of being together, of of celebrating around the Eucharist, around Christ's presence at the table. And as you said earlier, you'll know it by its fruits if it's leading to this sense of flourishing and belonging and and feeling loved for you with all your flaws and and reasons to be ashamed, then it's probably a good thing. Keep on with that. How it's also, it's a producer of relative autonomy and independence. The people involved are not becoming groupies to a cult, let alone a cult figure, and luckily I would be a useless, useless cult figure, but are becoming more independent, more able to make their own decisions, more full of dignity of, of sons and daughters of God. And that, that I think, that's the fruit thing you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's, easy to, it's, it's so easy to see how the cult closes people down and produces a kind of togetherness that ultimately is a form of dependence. And the kingdom of God opens up so that, if you like, the relaxation into dependence is not a pathology. <laughs> No, but is the condition of possibility of freedom and growth? Yeah, it That's doesn't St. Paul say like for freedom, I've set you for free. Freedom, or, for freedom, he has set us free. Yes, set us free for yeah. One of my favorite yeah, verses. It's absolutely vital. Absolutely vital. Yeah. Well, James, I think we're coming up on the phone call. Okay. Okay. Well, thank thank you, like- you very much for thank you. Oh, we ha- oh yes, the phone call. Sorry, I thought you meant the end of this. Oh, you want to? Oh, no, the, phone the call. Oh, yes, phone call. The phone call. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can you tell us what happened? Well, this followed an attempt by uh, the Cardinal of São Paulo to uh, to have me thrown out of the priesthood for reasons he never expl- made explicit. Uh, he followed a canonical procedure that was basically designed to enable people, to, bishops, to get rid of priests who refused to have any contact with them, who had left to get married a long time ago. He made no charges known to me, and he, he pushed it through the system, and it was all done, and I was formally expelled from the priesthood. I received a, a notification in Latin from, uh, from Rome. And, of course, this was quite shocking and depressing because it was just that's another blow to an attempt to, to speak truthfully and deal with this truthfully as, a, as an ordained priest. Anyhow, I had the good fortune to be able to show it to my former novice master, who's now a bishop. Actually, he's now, he's now, now reached retirement age, just very recently. And he said to me, James, pay no attention. This is, this is nonsense. But don't bother to write to the Pope to appeal it, because the letter will never get through, because of the filters. But I will seek out a private audience with him and uh, tell him personally this case and ask him to resolve it. So time went by, he got his private audience, he asked me to write a letter explaining the situation. I wrote the letter, Raoul took it, presented it to the Holy Father. He rang me a couple of days later and said, well, I had the audience, it was great, he was friendly, he didn't seem upset by my request, and something will happen. I don't know what, but something will happen. So I thought, wonderful, maybe in six months I'll get a little note from some aide-de-camp saying your your case is being looked into by the appropriate authorities, and something like that. 
instead of which I was sitting at my table here in Madrid, and this was now three years ago, July 2017. The telephone rang, hidden number, and the voice said, Soy el Papa Francisco. This is Pope Francis. So I said, En serio? Seriously? And he said, No, en broma, hijo. Uh, no, just kidding, son. <laughs> Um, uh, but it was he, I could tell, the you know, Argentinian accent, and the fact that he had my letter in front of him. But, uh, no one else had a copy of my, my letter apart from the former novice master, who it wasn't, and a couple of other friends who were not going to try to imitate Argentinian accents. Um, <laughs> well, no, and he clearly read the letter, he understood the matter, we chatted through friends we had in common. And then he said, I want you to, uh, to walk with complete interior freedom following the spirit of Jesus, and I give you the power of the keys. Do you understand? I give you the power of the keys. So I said, yes, even though I didn't really understand what he was saying, but it seemed to me to be, he said, he'd say, no, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> Just shows what a, what a stupid boy I am. But there we are. And he then chatted about a number of other things, including fairly comic comments about some people we knew in common, and then told me, I'll look into your dossier and get back to you at some time which he's never had, has done, I don't suppose he ever will, and why should he? Waste of time. Little by little, I understood that what he'd done was he treated me as a priest, even though his own congregations had dismissed me from the priesthood, so he basically olympically ignored his own congregations, and he gave me faculties to preach and to hear confessions worldwide. In other words, I didn't depend on the authority of the local bishop to do any of those things. Basically, he set me free to be a mercy priest. He'd appointed some people mercy priests during a jubilee of mercy. He set me free to be a mercy priest worldwide. Basically, he was saying, go on, be an adult. Go and do what you must do. Which was, was indeed an, an amazing thing, as I, as I mentioned at the time. The first, literally the first time in the whole of my period in the church that an adult had treated me as an adult. Mm. The most alarming thing was that it takes the Pope himself to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. Quite astounding. So, yeah, I, I shared that immediately with some very close friends, but I didn't. I told them to keep very hush-hush about it because he'd asked for discretion and I didn't want to get into the public domain. But later, a couple of years later, I heard that he'd had another private audience with Raoul in which he had explicitly explained to Raoul he said, he said to him, that guy you talked to me uh, about before, this is what I did with him. And he explained exactly what he'd done. And it happens, he explained in exactly the same words to Raoul what I had told Raoul. In other words, his version of events and my version of events matched exactly, which shows what an extraordinary memory he has, given that he's 80-something. But what I'm quite certain he was doing, because it was completely unnecessary for him to do that, what I'm quite certain that he was doing was creating a witness. So when Raoul told me that the Pope had told him that, I said, fine, I now feel free to go public with this and not to treat it as a matter of discretion. It seems to me that if he has deliberately told somebody, then he's created a witness. Mm -hmm. And so I feel free to tell you the, the story, as I've told others in writing. Um, yeah. But yes, it's a sign, I think, of him setting, setting me free to attempt to be whatever sort of priest uh, not obliging anyone to take me seriously by giving me any kind of canonical authority, but at least running the risk that maybe the Spirit will be able to make some use of my life mm. for the Spirit's own ends. And it does reveal sort of 
the movement he would like to see the entire church make, as well as the opposition he's facing to make that happen? Yes, I think that he understands that process is all. It's opening up the possibilities of these things being talked about and enabling people not to be frightened of talking about them. And that means, for instance, encouraging people to accompany other people. When they accompany them, they can begin to discover what they themselves know for themselves, but were unable to say before. That it's in working with other people that I've been able to discover this, and now I'm not frightened to say so. Mm-hmm. So I think that he knows that this is a process which he's opened up, and I hope is now unstoppable. Mm-hmm. I think that as this process develops, it will become perfectly clear quite how much of the got to obey the rules mentality is a counter witness to what Christianity is about, and the, the, the discovery of what the effects of the gospel are in our lives includes teaching us new things that we didn't know about. Like, for instance, that there are such things as gay and lesbian people and that they are an ordinary and maybe rather delightful part of God's creation. Mm-hmm. And that in the degree to which we're able to live our lives freely, holily, lovingly, and self-givingly, that maybe we are as much part of the sign as anybody else. Yeah, It's a beautiful demonstration of how the kingdom's going to come among us and how you can set up obstacles to it by fighting against those forces that are holding, you would say, are being obstacles to it. I mean, you you teach often about how when you oppose something, you're giving it more power, you're giving it strength. Yep. Yes, that's right. Never be oppositional. Yeah. The more we are oppositional, the more we become mirror images. And the more we give power to paper tigers. Yeah, spend your energies building up. Creatively, not reactively. Exactly. Yes. Amen. I Thank you, James. I really appreciate (laughs) talking with you today. We did cover a lot of ground. Thank you for... We did. Well, well, thank you for having me. For for taking the big questions that I tossed at you and handling them beautifully. And I am, I am very glad that you have the power of the keys and oh, thank you very much can indeed. minister yes. to us and keep on praying eucharistically with us. It's, it's a beautiful website that you have and a beautiful offering to people who, as you say, we're stuck in COVID times, but we're also stuck in times where the church is changing and learning. And here I'm we go. Imagining. Yep, here we go. Yeah, we go. We're in it together. Thanks again, James. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Many Catholics are impatient for change, especially the gay community and their family and friends, and who can blame them? They want honesty and repentance for the harm that so many suffered because they were told they weren't good enough for God. James has been outspoken about his disagreement with church teaching on homosexuality, and his ministry has been in large part to be the priest who is unafraid of who gay Catholics are and who in fact delights in what they are discovering about themselves and Christian life. Not surprisingly, he has received criticism from advocates who want him to join them in their anger and condemnation of church authorities. But James has a very nuanced understanding of who the good guys and bad guys are in this or in any highly polarizing situation. He understands that for humans to flourish, we must not get caught up in being self-righteous, 
no matter how righteous our cause may be. I am always impressed when James talks about the tortured place closeted gay priests find themselves in, especially the ones who are divided against themselves, trying to hold on to their belonging to an institution that thinks they are flawed people by virtue of who they are. I once heard an interviewer ask him why he wasn't more angry with the church, and his answer has guided my own response to those I think are evil or wrong. James says he always thinks about how he would want to be treated if it turned out he were wrong. Would he want to be scolded and lectured to, or would he rather be treated with compassion as a friend in need? Given he would prefer the latter, he does his best to do unto others as he would have them do unto him. In these highly polarized times, when I am tempted to be angry online, over the dinner table, or at someone protesting or counter-protesting out on the streets, I remember James's witness to this simple way that we can be a sign of the kingdom of God in the midst of the rivalry, resentment, and chaos that swirls around us. Thanks so much for listening to The Collaborators Podcast, a production of the Raven Foundation, where we offer a welcoming community to anyone disillusioned with organized religion, but who has not given up on God or a world at peace. And many thanks to this episode's sponsor, Jesus the Forgiving Victim, Listening for the Unheard Voice by James Allison. With Forgiving Victim, you can discover a radical yet utterly orthodox Christianity that is livable, prayable, and preachable. And please sign up for the Olive Branch, Raven's weekly newsletter, to keep up with our blog posts, events, and video and podcast series. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your collaboration as we work for the flourishing of nonviolent Christianity as a peaceful presence in a world of rivalry.